meaning behind your favorite songs. Not just big hits, but iconic culture-changing pieces of art. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. There is Cheryl Crow. Mark Myers is going to be breaking down the anatomy of that song. But first, uh, we just spent the past uh, 40 minutes or so talking about the great Linda Ronstadt. And uh, you just spoke to her recently. Yeah, I had uh, an interview with uh, Linda for my house call column, which runs in the mansion section every Friday. And it just focuses, that column just focuses on childhood. Um, and we talked about um, growing up in Arizona. It's actually the second time I spoke with her. I spoke with her for Anatomy of a Song on Different Drum. Oh, Stone the first Ponies. single, her first song. Yeah, yeah. So I interviewed her at length about four years ago on that. But um, getting to talk to her again, she's... Um, there's something v very peachy and precious about Linda Ronstadt. I mean, everybody loves her, but it's for a reason. You know, she is extremely open. Um, she doesn't care, meaning like, whatever you want to ask me, I'm happy to answer it. Um, and she is um, extremely artistic, meaning that what she cares about most, and you can hear it almost in every one of her answers, is song. I mean, she really is passionate about song, singing, and pushing herself in new directions. Whenever you hear a Linda Ronstadt song, come on, there's this sense of clutch your heart because like you feel that she's singing with everything she's got and yet in your piece you you ask what would you what don't you ever listen to and she said my own records wasn't that interesting yeah and and you know the other thing that blew my mind about that interview is i asked her um, what was a turning point for you? I mean, where where did you feel you were suddenly in command of your voice? And I really was waiting. For, the answer I was waiting for was in well, in 1969, I dot dot dot, and she said 1980. And wow. I said 1980. I said that's an interesting year. I mean, well, you know, what what happened in 1980? And she said I finally got out of pop and pushed myself into. Um, Mexican ballads uh, into the Nelson Riddle, What's New, American Songbook. Um, she had pushed her voice into many different directions that were completely new. And she didn't feel until 1980 that she actually was a singer, that she was moving into areas that were a risk for her, but at the same time, enormously satisfying. Yeah, in this documentary uh, we just talked about, there's a, a point where she wants to do, you know, the standards, and somebody says to her, she says, well, I wish I could get somebody, I, I need to find somebody who can arrange like Nelson Riddle, and somebody says, well, why don't you just call Nelson Riddle? And she, A, didn't even know he was alive, but more importantly, she's like, I didn't think he knew who I was. That's... Yeah. Yeah. bananas to me yeah it's funny i came up i came into a um a, a, or a, a you know documentary uh, it's not so much a documentary but footage of her recording with nelson riddle in the studio I, you know it's i don't think it's ever been issued but um it, it's just fascinating to watch her on the on the mic in the booth with nelson conducting and her voice her face is Literally, you could put a piece of paper between the microphone and her voice. She's that intimate with the microphone so that you can get that breathy sound that you're hearing. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, Linda's great love is the song. I mean, I don't know how else to put that. I mean, she really is just completely wed 
to the beauty of lyrics, the beauty of melody, and the beauty of um, communication through through song. That's so key, Mark, because, I mean, I think one of the reasons it took so long for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to recognize her is that she, she wasn't a songwriter. Mm. And yet there is an art to interpretation and to communication. Um, we had Maya Hawk on yesterday. She's from Stranger Things. She's the daughter of Uma and Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawk. And she said, you know, through everything she does, poetry, singing, acting, it's about telling a story. It's about communicating and emoting. And that's like what you get from Linda. I mean, when you think about singing Blue Bayou, yes, the original is by the great Roy Orbison, but the definitive version is by Linda Ronstadt. It's like Sinatra. Sinatra never wrote a song, but I mean, nobody read a song like Sinatra. Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, for example, Laura Nero. Right. I mean, she's just an amazing songwriter. I mean, when you look at the songs that she's written, I mean, it's just astonishing. So many were hits in the 1960s, except Laura Nero never had a hit with any of her own songs. The Fifth Dimension had the hits. Barbara Streisand had the hit. So um, in some respects, the interpreter um, is often the one who makes that song a hit and a moneymaker. Um, not always the songwriter. Some cases it is a songwriter, of course, but um, it's interesting. Um, uh, Linda Ronstadt is, is one of the great American interpreters of song. Um, when she sang, everybody felt it. Um, but she, she really does bring a level of intimacy to the song. But the reason why she's so respected, I mean, the reason Bonnie Raitt, you know, Bonnie's told me this also, I mean, the reason she's Linda's so respected is it's the interpretation, it's the phrasing, but it's this, how do I put this? It's, it's, a, it's a, almost like a hidden gear. Like she can throw mm. it into sixth mm. and other song, other, other singers and people who are in music can really hear that power surge mm. and know that she's not only in command of it, um, but in Michael Jackson as well. I mean, all the great pop singers have this extra gear that sets them apart from everybody else. And it's why, and we respond to that. Right, well, so I just wanted to mention about that because I knew that you had recently talked to her and I know we have to move on to Sheryl Crow, but as with all your pieces, I learned something that I never knew about this Russian doll that is Russian nesting doll that is Linda Ronstadt and that her favorite pop artists are Sia and First Aid Kid. Right, right. Isn't that fun? It's yeah. just so fun, Mark. Yeah, yeah. she's always always on the next, you know, it's not what happened yesterday. Um, Linda hates looking back. I mean, I remember asking her, so, you know, what do you think when you listen to Different Pony today? I mean, because the thing with Different Pony is most people thought it was an anti-war song. You know, it mm. was, it was, it had an anti-war urgency. It, it came out in 69, I think. Um, and she, you know, I said, you know, so I was asking her, like, do you hear it as that? Has it become that? Is it still that? Or is it originally, you know, is it still the original song you sang in the studio at Capitol? And she goes, I, you know, I hate the song. I can't listen to it. I never listen to it. If I hear the needle on that record, I'm diving for the phonograph to get it, get the needle <laughs> off the record. Um, a lot of artists do not listen to their material. The same, you know, as you know, as a journalist, a lot of artists do not read their press. They just don't, they just are moving forward. They're constantly moving forward. They don't, they don't have reverse gear. They do not have, a lot of them don't have reverse gear. Well, it's interesting. Uh, your latest anatomy of a song, Sheryl Crow, if it makes you happy. It's it, two things I, I, I realized. 
Um, when Tuesday Night Music Club came out, yes, yeah, she was everywhere. She, I did a show with her, and I'll never forget. She walked up. She was holding a Heineken in each hand. She was holding a <laughs> cigarette in one hand and a joint in the other. She's like, hey, man, thanks for having us play this show. And I could see she was burnt out then. Yeah. Right? And then Jeff Trot, for some reason, I hadn't put it together that it was it was the Jeff Trot from Wire Train. Right. So when you listen to, like, like Stone Me is, like, one of my favorite songs by then, yeah. you kind of hear where it came from. You yeah. kind of hear where he got to. Where right. He got to. Right. Um. You know, Cheryl is just a fascinating figure. I mean, it was marvelous interviewing her, but she's really, you know, for the listener, um, she is, um, she fits into every category, which is fascinating. Her voice can sound country. It can sound pop. I mean, there isn't anything Cheryl can't sing and sound authentic. It's funny that we're talking about her right after Linda Ronstadt, who was similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Linda, it's always Linda, right? It's always, you know, it's always like a Cadillac. No matter what it is, it's it's a Cadillac. It's it's Linda. But Cheryl has this ability to get inside the music and give it whatever. It's the difference between the two is that Cheryl's Cheryl has this thing that she does that she's able to grasp and articulate the essence of what she's singing, the genre. If it's country, she sounds so country through and through. If it's pop, MTV pop, she's just pop all the way. She has this ability to shift her frequency and be enormously convincing. I mean, you know, she, she I, back in, let, let's talk about the song, back in 96, you know, she releases Sheryl Crow. I mean, she released Sheryl Crow, which is the album this song is from, uh, if it makes you happy. Um, and that was the big song off the album in 96. Um, it's released as a single in September of 96 by A&M, and it climbs to number 10 on Billboard's pop chart. She wins Best Female Rock Vocal Performance, the, the Grammy for that, and Best Album. Um, this is coming off of winning three for her initial album. Um, and, you know, so there's a, you know, what does the Grammy mean? It doesn't mean anything. But what it does mean is that your record sold a lot. I mean, it did really well. Okay, what does that mean? It means that a lot of hearts were touched, and a lot of hearts took out their wallets and spent money on it. That's how much they loved it. So grounding does mean something. It really means a lot. Does it mean number two and number three weren't good? No. It just means that if you're in contention for that award, a lot of people were touched by what you created. Um, she's been nominated for 31 Grammys. Wow. And she won nine. I mean, it's a lot of Grammys. You know, I don't think I knew that. I, 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 I actually went, I was at, with her at a Grammys once, and I, I didn't realize she was such a Grammy darling. Big, big. I mean, a lot, her, as I say, it's because her voice is convincing in any genre. You know, her music's great. Her delivery's great. It's powerful. It's passionate. All of the elements that are essential. But she gets the essence. I mean, it's the, it's, it's. How do I put this? It's like it's like when you taste something and it tastes authentic to whatever ethnic cuisine it is. You know, it's like, wow, this is great. That there's a no frills thing. Like we were just talking about that with Linda Ronstadt too. Like there's just this. When I think of Sheryl Crow, I think of the I music. Agree. I'm thinking no frills. I agree. I agree. Uh, for her first album, Tuesday Night Music Club, uh, like I said, she won three Grammys, two for All I Want to Do, which is you know that was a huge hit. Um, 
And then record the two were record of the year and best female pop vocal performance, and she won for best new album. I mean, that's yeah, that's that's her first album. That's coming out of the gate. Um, her new album, I mean, is insane. I'm sure you've heard it. Threads. It is incredible. I mean, she was just um, what, what she, was she at Bonnaroo? Was she at? No, she was at with the High Women at uh, the Newport, Newport Folk, Folk Festival. Got it. Yes. See there again. You know, you know, where does she turn up? You know, this this dyed-in-the-wool country sound or this dyed-in-the-wool pop sound at the folk festival. And she can sound authentically folk. Um, Johnny Cash was like that in many ways, right? I mm. mean, he could really sound, and he could, you could put him, you could give him almost anything. And even in his later, you know, last years, um, he really sounded in, like indie rock. I mean, he had all these different ways that he could phrase Even things. think about it, she's very <clears throat> Nashville, but very L.A. That's correct, yeah. Uh, the new album, Threads, is coming on August 30th. Um, she teams up with, I mean, I couldn't believe reading the list. You know, when I got the album, it was Stevie Nicks, Mavis Staples, Bonnie Raitt, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Keith Richards. I mean, these duets, every single duet has two or three people on it, but they're all... A-listers. I mean, it's really extraordinary. It's extraordinary because of the sound. It's extraordinary because of the packaging. But those people don't do those kinds of albums with just anybody. So it's a, it's a credit to her and her longevity and her ability that all of these people are, are saying basically when they get the call, heck, yeah, I'll be there. I mean, I'd love to, love, to, love to do something with her on that album. So it says a lot about her. Let's take a sneak peek of this album because it's really, I want you to hear this. Here's um, Still the Good Old Days with Joe Walsh. The other thing about her is she can sound girlish, you know, she can, she can sound, you know, womanly and then she can sound girlish and it sounds like she's in a convertible driving along or she's on a motorcycle. She just has this chameleon-like way with her voice that's I remember it was decidedly more rock, quote unquote, than Tuesday Night Music Club because remember they were still trying to push her as like Michael Jackson's former backup singer and right, all that. Right, right, which we'll touch on, which we'll touch on. The um, Background to her, you know, Cheryl's born in 1962 in Kennett, Missouri. Um, she attends the, most people don't realize this, she attends the University of Missouri at Columbia. She graduates with a degree in music composition, performance, and education. Cheryl actually plays seven different instruments. I mean, she is a one, she can do it all. I mean, she really, you don't, you don't get to that level. I mean, you just don't, and you don't last as long as she has without being able to do it all. You really do have to be the complete package. Yeah, she really never goes away. That's the thing. She doesn't yeah. go out of vogue, ever. That, Like I said, the new album, which is really, I think you could probably sample a bunch of tracks now. Um, I think on Amazon I saw, maybe, I don't know how much Spotify has, but, you know, you, you, you just listen to these songs with the artist she's working with, and... She's drive. She's flying the jet on each song. It's not like you know Meek Cheryl in the background and everybody else is kind of partying away. And she's just, she's she's running the show on each of these tracks. It's really cool. Um, and while in Missouri, while she's down there, she has this. She has a friend with a recording studio in the basement, and they become friends. And he's he actually gets her jingle work right so she sings ads for mcdonald's toyota and other products and there's a couple of them on youtube actually um 
And, you know, Cheryl's a killer backup singer. She began as a backup singer and enormously powerful voice. Again, she's successful because she can do R&B. She can switch to pop. She can switch to rock. She had a versatile sound that allowed her to do this. Let's let's listen, uh, Nick, let's listen to the, the, the Michael Jackson duet because most people don't even realize she did a duet with him. Here she is in 1988 singing, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. That's a duet with Michael Jackson. This is on tour. This is live on his bad tour. And that's 120 in. I mean, even then, as soon as she walks out, the crowd's going nuts. I mean, it's songs like this that give you goose pimples, right? I mean, it's uh, Michael Jackson's just so. I mean, when you watch this video, the guy is in such command. I mean, the guy's confidence level and the command that he has when performing. Um, you know, you, you, you got to separate the art from scandal obviously but he's, he's just an extraordinary performer and she really holds her own in this video it's 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 on youtube um you can see it and uh it's it's an amazing it's an amazing duet most people definitely don't realize that cheryl had a james bond theme uh, and it yeah. was a hit and it was a hit um let's listen to her theme with uh, co-written with mitchell Froome for the james bond film tomorrow never dies in 97. Not country now, not folk. It's a pop, it's a pop belter with the Shirley Bassey intensity. I mean, she's she's modulated. I mean, she's dialed to a different place for this particular song. What a great opening couplet, it's darling. Great. I'm killed. I'm in a puddle on the floor. People say now, I'm dead. I'm dead. She yeah. said it first, yeah. except she said it better. I'm killed, <laughs> darling. I'm killed. That's great. That's true. Um, and her duets are, you know, here's Honky Tonk Women with the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden in 2013. She's in there. She'll be. She pops in. You got to give Nick. Got to give Nick a chance. Yeah. Yes, sir. But you watch this video and the stagecraft. You know her energy. Uh, you know 
coming up close to Mick, backing off. Um, you know, she's a rocker also. You I know, big think, rocker. I always thought that was part of the Grammy darling thing with her because, again, Tuesday Night Music Club was a very poppy-centric record. And then right. when she goes on after that, remember, she's embraced by all those guys. She's touring with Eric Clapton, dated Eric Clapton. She gets, she starts doing all these collaborations. So I think the baby boomer generation discovers that she's legit in their minds. But she's also fearless. And a, even though she comes along generations later she's a peer of theirs isn't that what's and she's kind of got that same she, essence of you that get too. this sense that you know we saw her backstage with stevie nicks the night that stevie nicks was um inducted into the rock hall mm. and cheryl came into our little area to like be like stevie it was like their peers right. even though clearly she's an inspiration to to cheryl there's never this sense that like cheryl is trying to play up to their level she's on it yeah and the the, the fascinating thing about my interview with her um is her I got, we got into a space where she was very vulnerable um and she was sort of talking about you know how this song came to be and the meaning of the song to her personally <clears throat> and her it was fascinating for me to hear um, her vulnerability because it makes that's the human side of anybody. It's the vulnerability. It's not, you know, the talking points. It's not, you know, remembering what you said in the last three interviews. For me, I'm always looking to get somebody into a space where we're into new territory, but we're into new emotional territory. And, you know, she's talking about that first album. And, you know, the, the word on it had always been that um, um, she got a rough ride, that the band members, you know, were sort of saying, ah, you know, we, we, we did everything on there and she didn't do that much. And, you know, they had a real big falling out, uh, her and the, and, the, and the band on the first album. Um, she told me that what she did, you know, full, in hindsight, she said foolishly, is um, she gave everybody publishing rights. So everybody, you know, virtually everybody appears on every song as the writer. Um, and she, you know, that was sort of a, sort of a, a democratic way of saying to everybody, you know, let's get behind this. You're all vested. You know, this is the first album or the first album. This is the first album. And the band was still pissed off that it was well under her name. What, this is what happens. In, this is what happens psychologically in life. Right. As soon as everybody feels that they were part of something. Everybody feels they're unequal. It's not, you know, it's not, God, thanks so much. That's what I was just yeah, thinking. Yeah, thanks for helping me pay my bills. That's yeah, thanks saying. so much. I can buy a house. It, it's, you know, it's it's snippy. It's snooty. It's I'm ego. a songwriter, it's, too. Right. But you have to keep, this is the factor you have to put it, keep in mind. And every rock, every rock um, interview and, and every rock writer knows this. You're dealing with narcissists. It's built in. It's not a bad thing. You know, narcissism is That's why they are rock stars. That's, that's why we're not and they are, because they get out there, they live for that, and that that narcissism fuels them. It's what we actually love. If Paul McCartney behaved like an, you know, like some sort of meek clerk someplace or, or a, a rental car, you know, clerk at, at, at some place, it's like, you know, we wouldn't, we like the fact that he's larger than life. So narcissism's good. But um, everybody suddenly caught the caught the narcissism thing. Um, so they're ticked. And what they're ticked about is that she is the solo. I mean, it's a, it's a Sheryl Crow album, right? And they were saying, 
Well, yeah, we knew that going in, but this became a band album. This is a band effort. This is this is you know this is a band. This should be called like the Doobie Brothers. Or this Did should they be called... tell Tom Petty this? Just wondering. I don't know. This is what I'm you know? saying. Didn't know. It, this don't happens. Know. This is what she this says is, happens. But this always happens with women. You know this. Even we just talked about it again in the Linda Ronstadt documentary. The men felt they hated working for a woman boss. That she was the front, but they felt like they were the band. I, well. Yes and no. I, I agree with you because it's that time period and it, th these things happen all the time. And even Cheryl and I talked about this because I had just finished. I had I was talking about interviewing Hart with a you know, similar story. Um, and she's very close you know, you know, with them. Um, I think I think this is basically a human nature thing that if the band were all if all of, if all of the members of that band were women and Cheryl Crow had given out the song rights to everybody and then this was a Cheryl. Cheryl Crow album, I have to assume some of those women would be carping too. It's just the nature of the beast. And it's not so much male-female in the situation as it is um, narcissism and everybody wants to be a rock star. But the crazy That's why you thing go is they that. know they signed up for a, it's her deal, Cheryl Crow solo album. Yes. You know, I'm I'm thinking, because I have Tuesday Night Music Club, it's not like it's the band all over the cover. You know, it's just... It's just but weird. why does a women, why does this person give away the rights in the first place? Because often women want to share, keep the band together. Right. There is a sense of that of right. you know. Right. And and you know, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, um, male and female rock stars want to be stars. I mean, they're not there to be backup singers, right? So they want a break. They're waiting for their. I interviewed. She Clint, already was one. Yeah, I interviewed Clint Black yesterday at length, and he's such a great guy, Clint Black. Um, but you know, it's the same thing on how you break out, and you know, people are pushing, and everybody. If you went down to Nashville and you asked everybody in Nashville, "Isn't it great to be third backup singer?" You know, they're they're you know, no, it's not. I want to be. I want to break out. I'm waiting for my chance. I, I can I can be a country star too. That's why people go into that line of work. So, but the problem is that everybody figured, I mean, the thing that got her, the thing that ate Cheryl, um, is that everybody thought that the guys had written all the songs and that she was somehow just the singer and window dressing. Um, she was diminished. Um, and it really aided her. I mean, so after three years on the road, you know, touring, uh, Cheryl gets rid of her band and she goes down to New Orleans to record the next album, the second album. Um, and she calls guitarist and songwriter Jeff Trott to help her write the songs for the album. And Jeff had played backup on her tour and she was watching Jeff play and listening to him fool around on songs. And they, they developed a real great working relationship. Um, Cheryl told me that she, she really wanted to prove that she could do it without the earlier band and she could front her own group. That I can do this this isn't a group. This wasn't a team thing. This is me driving this thing, and I'm going to show you how I, you know, I'm going to show you what I can do on my second album. So who's Jeff Trot? Right? We keep mentioning Jeff Trot. Jeff's born in San Mateo, California. Um, Jeff is a really great guy. I mean, I don't know if you ever had a chance to interview Jeff, but he is absolutely wonderful. Um, he played with Wiretrain, Nick, as you pointed out, which released six super studio albums. If you don't know Wiretrain, go onto YouTube or Spotify and, and check it out. Here's, here's one of their songs, one of my favorites from that group. Here's Crashing Back to You from No Soul, No Strain in 92. It's like Talking Heads Roots or something, right?
They kind of took cold on the West Coast, but not really so much the East. Yeah, yeah. It's just a great sound. I mean, it's a, this is driving music. You can really see, you know, if you're on the highway, this is great stuff. But listeners should check it out. It's Wire Train. So Jeff did a lot of writing for other artists. He wrote I'll Be Your Doctor for Joe Cocker in 2012. Do we have that? All right. I mean, Jeff's got great R&B sensibility, great riff sensibility, and there's a lot of Keith in him, a lot of Keith in him, which is what Cheryl loves about Jeff. got that sort of slash to his guitar. Yeah, yeah. What's that you wearing? God, I was so close to Joe, Joe Cocker, getting the Joe Cocker interview. I was going to fly out to his house in the middle of the Rockies toward the end, but he was just too sick. I'm for, I'm, that's one of the ones that got away. Um, my favorite by Jeff, though, is his solo album, Dig Up the AstroTurf. If you don't know Dig Up the AstroTurf, you got to check it out. Uh, done in 2000. It's sort of a Roots meets Electronica mash. Here's Atomic Halo. Cool, right? Wow. Yeah. This could be an opener for for a Bowie song or something. You got a four-star Western special, nudie suit, and a bit on stage. This is so my style. It's, it's just great stuff. Dig up the AstroTurf, Jeff Trot, solo album. Great. We should take a quick break. Leave you hanging on the Jeff Trot thing. Again, I'm telling you, you know Stone Me, right? That, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. When I, when I knew that he was involved, I, I literally heard that in my head. Mark Myers, more of uh, Anatomy of a Song, Cheryl Crawford Makes You Happy, next on Feedback. Stick around. Get your mind up off your feet. Nick Carter and Lori Majewski returns in just a moment. The stories behind the hits that shape the world of music. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. in studio with us but until then it's our man Mark Myers anatomy of a song Mark Myers from the Wall Street Journal he is doing another excavation this is the thing you frack these songs definitely you get like down to the nerve all the way down and then go another 40 feet yeah, it's like <laughs> you know again for me it's always about vulnerability it's about emotion and it's going beyond the wiki rat-a-tat-tat -tat. it's it, you know the the reader wants to feel 
what I've written. And if I can't get to the emotional vein, if I can't get to where um, the tears are, then um, I haven't done my job. My job is to go, is to give the reader a, a ride they've never had before. It's to blow the mind. Have you ever shelved one? Like, have you ever not gotten to the nerve and was like, like with my book, there were several chapters just didn't work out. I did the interview and I just felt like, no. you know what, they don't sit with the rest of no, these. I, 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 you know, I write for the Wall Street Journal. It's one of the country's largest newspapers. I'm there as a, I'm a, I'm a gunslinger. If I you can't, gotta get, do it. if I can't get in there and save the town from the bad guys, I shouldn't have gotten off the train. <laughs> I was, I was just waiting for. And there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of like, you know, they know you're coming in, so they get oh, yeah. ready. They yeah. get ready. Yeah. I'm just waiting for. I've only shelved one, and that song was Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's like you know, I, I have, you know, it's great pressure to have that. You, you know, you've got. 20 minutes or 25 minutes with somebody and you've got to get to the tears and there's no turning back and you've just got to move forward and you've got to get it no matter what. Um, okay, so this song, let's do the song story because the story of the song is has an incredible ending. I'm not going to give it away. Um, and if you haven't read the column, you know, be sure you're sitting down at the end of it. Jeff starts writing the song If It Makes You Happy in January 1994. He actually started the song. The song came out of, off of his pen to begin with. Um, Cheryl comes in later and they work on the song together uh, when they're recording, um, when they're putting, when they're recording her second album down in New Orleans. At any rate, uh, here's 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 the Jeff part of this. He starts it hours after his girlfriend Quinn leaves him on January 16th. And the reason I'm telling you the date, January 16th of of 1994, is you'll know in a minute. They were both living together in L.A., um, and his girlfriend was just sick of the traffic there, sick of the impersonal quality of the city, and she just wanted out and just wasn't going to hear anything about it, and she she drives off. And that night of the 16th, Jeff opens a cheap bottle of sherry, and he sits down at the piano to write while he tapes himself ranting, and then he goes to bed. And at 4.30 in the morning, and for those on the West Coast, you know what's coming, um, he's jolted awake. And what happens that morning, you know, hours after his girlfriend leaves and hours after he starts this song, is the big 6.7 Northridge earthquake strikes. And plaster comes down on him. I mean, if it wasn't bad enough that his girlfriend left and he's drinking <laughs> Chief Sherry, his entire ceiling falls down in his, in his apartment. <sighs> He couldn't get out. He couldn't get out of the house because anybody knows about earthquakes is it shifts everything and then the door's stuck and all of the he's on the ground floor so all of the windows have bars on them and he can't he can't get out. Fortunately, the girl next door dated big guys, right? You know? So uh, he's friends with her and he's you know yelling to her and finally um her, you know, large size date comes over with a crowbar and he's able to pry open the door to his place. Jeff moves out into a friend's house. He comes back several days later to get his stuff because he had to get out fast uh, because of the, the you know, un unstable quality of his apartment building. Um, and he finds the tape where he started, if it makes you happy, he puts the tape in his pocket, grabs his guitars, and he moves to San Francisco up to his parents' house. Um, after about six months, he moves back into L.A., into the apartment of his next door neighbor, she decided she's had enough and she moves out and he, her place was better. So he takes her place. Um, by then, Jeff has about two thirds of this song written and many of the lyrics are about his confusion. He's just not, he can't quite fathom why his girlfriend was so happy in the relationship, but just had to get out. Like, why did she leave if she's so happy? If it makes you happy, why are you leaving? If this is making you happy, why are you taking off? Why are you, why are you heading north and, and leaving me here? Um, so he couldn't, that's, that's where the song comes from originally. Um, 
The lyrics of this song center on their time shopping at thrift stores. I mean, if you read the lyrics about the poncho and Marilyn's shampoo and, you know, the stuff that's going on in there, lyrics are about shopping at thrift shops where they spent a lot of their time and also his time in, in wire train, you know, playing a lot of coal train, the train jump track. You know, a lot of those are, are, are allusions to um, references to playing with wire train uh, and opening for Dylan. Um, by then, he's offered a job playing backup in Cheryl's band on tour. Um, and when that tour ends, as I said, Cheryl's watching, you know, uh, Jeff play. I mean, she's really taking a liking to him as an artist. Um, and she realizes he's different than everybody else in that band. Um, there's a sensitivity level that's different. Uh, when the tour ends, they start writing a little together. And uh, Jeff plays first plays her what he's got for If It Makes You Happy at a friend's cabin and recording studio near Yosemite in California. And she loves the song. So that when she's in New Orleans in 1996, she calls Jeff and says, Jeff, come, you know, come down, come down to work on my next album. And he goes, yeah, you know, I'm, we talked about this. I'm coming down in a week. No, no. She says, come down now. You got come down now. I really want to get this thing going. I mean, Cheryl's perspective on this song is, this is what's fascinating to me about this song and why I was so attracted to it. It's co-written by two people who have very different perspectives on what that line means if it makes you happy. I just told you what Jeff's perspective was, but Cheryl's perspective is if this album, if my first album did so great and I made so much on it and I got recognition by the Grammys, it's like, what are you unhappy about? Like, if this is making you happy, you know, who cares about those guys? Who cares about that first band? They wanted to sell like six million copies or yeah. something ridiculous. Yeah, like she, that. It's yeah, right out of the gate. So, I mean, she has a completely different perspective on the same lyrics, which is fascinating. And they're starting to work on this song together from different places. Um, so Jeff comes down and the first song they work on for the album is If It Makes You Happy. Um, what's interesting is is that the song, as I say, means two different things to Cheryl and Jeff. To Cheryl, you know, it's it's that she's torn up about, you know, that last experience. For Jeff, he's torn up about his girlfriend leaving him um, and his confusion over why she's breaking it off when everything's going so well. Um, so Cheryl's out. This album comes out, right, in 96. And, you know, to get into the details of what they did on this song, you know, rather than rather than give it to you here, I would just suggest people read the column because I get into nitty gritty on two guitars here and that Cheryl plays Wurlitzer, you know, some Wurlitzer uh, electric piano and then Jeff's writing the intro and then Cheryl puts down the, the vocal. All that stuff's in the column. Um, but Cheryl's album comes out and it's a massive hit, this, uh, this album. Um, Jeff, this, it's, doing, it's done so well that Jeff decides to buy a house in Portland and he moves out of L.A. And on a whim, once he's up and up, once he's up there, he um, decides to call Qu Quinn, you know, just to see, uh, you know, it's like he's out of L.A. and he just wants to see what can he what can he stir up. Um, and on the phone, he, you know, he's talking to her and he says, listen, I don't know whether you, uh, you heard Cheryl's new album. You know, if it makes you happy, I, I wrote that and I was in, you know, I started that song. We wrote it together, but I started that song and, um, you know, it's inspired by you. And. The, the line is quiet and it's quiet for about five, six, seven seconds. He told me, and then he hears, Oh wow. And she's like, Oh my God, I didn't, I had no idea. Um, and so every, for, for those who have pulled over to the side of the road out there and for those on the edge of their seats, um, what's the twist here? Well, Today, I'm happy to report that Jeff and Quinn are married and they live in Nashville and they, they got married in 2005 and they have two sons, Adrian and Griffin. And, um, 
you know, they, it, this is actually a love story. This, she didn't this whole think thing. it was that bad after all. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, exactly. But, she, you know, if it makes you, the, the reason she couldn't bear to be there anymore was L.A. She just had enough of the impersonal, big town, traffic ridden, you know, aspects of L.A. And, you know, she moves up there. And, you know, but, you know, when Jeff told me this during the interview, it's like mm. I, I fell off my chair. It was like, what? Love I, conquers I, all, man. Well, I said to him, you know, we were done with the interview, and I said, you know, because I'm I'm always about love stories. You know, if I can yes. if I can find a love story in anything, I'm you know, the readers love love stories, and I love love stories. I said, so did Quinn ever? You know, did you ever tell her? You know that this song was you know that you had started this after she left, and you know you and Cheryl worked on it, but that you know your initial work on it was inspired. You know, she, he goes. Well, actually, I did. And then he told me the story about moving, and then he told me, you know, her reaction. And I said, "So, you know, wh where's where's Quinn today?" And it's like, you know, does your wife know about Quinn? And he goes, "Well, actually, Quinn is my wife." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, where's Quinn today? Yeah. Yeah. She's in the living room." Yeah, yeah. And it's just, Aww. you know, and for those who read the piece online, uh, if you if you saw it at wsj.com, um, Jeff sent me a photo of him and Quinn Aww. just when they got back together um, and that little photo is in the um, uh, but Jeff's such a hi Jeff Jeff's such a great guy I mean he uh, yeah he's just you know again also a, like most great artists just transparent emotionally open available when you're interviewing him and he you know we he you know that interview ran long Jeff was on there for a long time with me and he just you know, to hear that kicker at the end, you know, because so, I'm always shopping for a kicker when I'm doing my interview. I'm waiting for, you know, what am I going to end this piece with? And as soon as I heard that, it was like, you know, the neon signs, the yeah. the, the, the neon signs on Times Square all went on. Did know? I, I misunderstand? Like, oh. We were just talking. Did I misunderstand that, as you said, okay, so they both had different perspectives on the lyric, but Cheryl didn't know the backstory of any of this? No, because, wow. again, when they're sitting down to write, when artists are sitting down to write, she's got her emotions invested. You know, they're not, when they're sitting down to write, they're not wiring something or changing stuff in a car, right? It's like, as you know, it's, you know, they're emotionally invested. But in this case, unlike, you know, I would imagine Lennon and McCartney, the same thing. They, on songs, they were probably coming from different places, different experiences, different things they overheard, different things they feel, which is why they maybe argued over lyrics and often did. But with, with this, Cheryl's coming to it she, but Jeff didn't know Cheryl's perspective, right? They're coming yeah. to it with, you know, they're tips of an iceberg, and below is that story, all of their feelings, all of their emotions. They're just putting things out there and writing a song, but where that's coming from, that's an emotional closet. That's a dark place, and it's not necessary for them to air all of that. That happened also. You remember we did Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins on um, What a Fool Believes? Yeah. You know, they were coming from different places on that, really. Yes. Yeah, because I never would have thought that that's where Cheryl Crow was coming from. They're both great people. Because on paper, it just terrific. seems the dream. She finally, she comes out of the shadow of being a session musician in a background. You know, she makes her album. It's a hit. And it's just, yeah, it's just overwhelming. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Mark Myers on Feedback. Feedback returns in just a moment. to the history of the iconic hits that changed rock, R&B, and pop. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. 
Tomorrow's Friday. That means new music with Larry Flick, and we'll be joined by Daughtry. He's still out there. Mark Myers is here. Uh, he's just broken down that song, Cheryl Crow, if it makes you happy. What happens now? Let's do a top 10. Hey, uh, for people out there who want or are writing songs or want to write a song or want to try it out, um, stick the word happy in the title. Uh, it, 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 remember, <laughs> we did Fool. We did all those Fool yes. songs. Yeah. Um, Let's do a whole, let's do 10 happy songs. Um, let's start with Happy Together by the Turtles. 67. Big hit. Imagine me and you, I do. I let's do the original of this song. I'm not going to tell you what the title is, but it's Brenda Holloway in 1967. David Clayton Thomas was not the original. Brenda Holloway was. You've made me so very happy. Happy's in the title of all of these songs. Let's do the Edwin Hawkins Singers in 1968. Oh, yes. This is Oh Happy Day. Great. Let's move to 1969. The group is Mercy. Blue-eyed soul, love can make you happy. It's actually a great hit, really great hit. Uh, let's do the Rolling Stones, Happy, 1972. Just gotta say your list is specious if that's not on there. <laughs> Five more to go. Let's jump to Al Green, 1974. Sha la la, make me happy. Just put happy in the title of your song if you're writing a song right now. Of course, we got to do Bobby McFerrin, right? 1988. Don't worry, be happy. Blows my mind. This was a hit. Uh, I know. <laughs> but you know the it great. Was, it was the, a number one song. And the better version of this really is Bob Marley, right? 1988. REM. Let's go to 91. REM. Shiny happy people. This is so great, isn't it? I always hated this song. Really? I love REM, but this song made me cringe. a Motown opener though you know I love the guitar on that thing um, gotta do Pharrell right 2013 <laughs> I can't get the Canadian Mountie hat out <laughs> out of my head yes. right? my, favorite the white shirt. Shirt. my favorite part of this is the yeah I yeah. love this. 
And let's finally, let's just, let's recap. Let's just drop in Cheryl's uh, If It Makes You Happy in 96. All those songs had happy in the title. All were massive hits. All of those artists, if they're still around, have seven homes. <laughs> <laughs> but this was so like melancholy and uh, melancholy and not quote unquote happy sounding. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's there's an optimism in it. Mark Myers, as always, Thanks, uh, at Series X. Great being with you guys. Tweeting out this uh, this story. You got to read it. It All is right. a redemptive one. Don't forget, fierce women in music, the high women at one p.m. today, right here on Volume. Don't forget, Nick. Tomorrow morning, later. Peace. Bye.